Father, thank you so much for the opportunities that you give us to share the love of Christ with people around us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see those opportunities, that you would help us to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit, to take advantage of those opportunities. I pray for those kids at the college that we met and for the ones that we didn't, for all the things that they are facing and dealing with. I pray for the campus ministries, Lord, like Young Life and Chi Alpha and Christian Challenge that are working to minister to those students. God, and I pray that you would bless them and, and open doors and fill them with your grace and your guidance and your spirit. And I pray for those who were on campus working to help the kids, that you would give them just your blessing and your wisdom. And I pray, Father, as we study your word this morning, that we would hear your voice very clearly through the scriptures, that we would hear what you would have for each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 9, verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him, and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives him who sent, or sorry, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For who is least among you all will be great. So here we find a very profound moment of teaching from our Savior, Jesus Christ, aimed at reshaping our understanding of greatness and leadership in the kingdom of God. The disciples get caught in a moment of human weakness as they argue, dispute, or debate among themselves about who of them might become the greatest. I have always read this with a great desire to actually hear that conversation. You got these, you got these 12 guys, right? And now, and it does say among the disciples, it doesn't specifically name the 12. And we knew there was quite a group of people, but let's just assume for the moment that it was just the 12. And you got Peter walking down, right? And you can't get the, the actor who plays him out of your head if you've watched The Chosen, but, but, you're, but you see Peter walking down. Yeah, guys, you know, you know it's going to be me. I mean, you know, when, when all is said and done, Jesus is going to pick me, right? And then, and then, you know, maybe John steps in and he goes, really? Has he ever called you the beloved? Oh, oh yeah, and Judas, right? Because Judas was okay still. Oh, yeah, but did he trust any of you with the money? Clearly, he trusts me the most. He, he gave me the money. Right? And, and maybe Simon the Zealot. I'm the only one with any military experience. You know I'm going to be his general. And you can just kind of picture this going on with them, them getting into it back and forth. No, it'll be me. No, it'll be... You're an idiot. He's going to pick me. And then I want to know what Jesus' face looked like. You ever hear your kids argue about something stupid? 
I heard the greatest story ever this morning that I'm going to share. Courtney told me this story. That the boys were in their, their room in their, their separate little, their little cribs, beds. Their, I don't know what they sleep in. I should. I've been there. But, um, and she heard them on the mar- monitor arguing over which one of them I belonged to. My Jason. No, my Jason. Yeah, that's right. Right? But you ever hear, hear your kids argue over something dumb? And there's part of you that's like, well, not that. That was the greatest conversation, maybe, that's ever taken place outside of Scripture. But, you know, sometimes you'll hear the kids arguing over a toy, or they'll be arguing over some mythical land that they've invented. And there's part of you that's like, well, they don't really need to be arguing over that. And then there's another part of you that gets a little smile on the corner of your face because it's just so adorable. I wonder what face Jesus made. Was he walking along hearing this conversation behind him and he get a little smirk and a little head like, oh gosh, they, did, they don't get it yet, do they? Or was he angry? You know, like, oh my, have they not been listening for the last couple years? We don't know. Whatever the case, he knows their thoughts and he, he presents them with a child. He takes this child and sits this child down next to him, a symbol of humility and dependence. And he shares with them a kingdom principle that is the polar opposite of what our world teaches us, what our culture teaches us, what the schools might teach you. And as much as I love psychology and studying the mind and and all of that, there's a lot of things within modern psychology that teach the same thing. And the opposite of what we've all been taught for the most part is that he who is least among you will be great. That's, That's not what our culture teaches us. Our culture teaches us, well, if you want to be great, what do you do? You put yourself ahead of everybody else. If somebody gets in your way, you get them out of your way. If somebody disagrees with you, you get rid of them. You don't talk to them anymore, right? And and you, you can build upon that in whatever direction you want, but that's what our culture teaches us. You can go all the way back to uh, any boxing fans. Really? Not well, Thank you, Emil. I, I mean, I like to watch boxing. Um, all the way back to when Muhammad Ali screamed that he was, I am the greatest! Or what about the Beatles? Any Beatles fans? What about when the Beatles, uh, was it John Lennon who said that they were bigger, greater, than, more popular than Jesus? Now, here's the sad thing, right? They got in all kind of trouble because back then our nation still pretended to be Christian. But he probably wasn't it probably wasn't an accurate statement. Probably wasn't. Because that is what we're taught. Jesus is advocating for a reversal of roles. And he's elevating the virtues of humility and service and care for the vulnerable as the true markers of greatness in the eyes of God. And it's different than what the world teaches us. So let's explore this. 
In verse 47, Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. This action follows this dispute that we read about, a dispute filled with personal ambition and a misunderstanding of Jesus' message about God's kingdom. Jesus' response, as captured in this verse, demonstrates his divine insight. He knew the thoughts and the motivations hidden in the hearts of his disciples, and instead of directly rebuking them for their ambitions, he chose a gentle yet powerful teaching moment. I think he does that to me. Anybody? He does that to me. There's plenty of times he has straight up rebuked me, either through his word or the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There's many times when I will be thinking something or going in a specific way, and he'll ask me a question. My therapist does this to me, too. Uh, Y'all know I have a therapist. Is that news to anybody? Good. Um, and and I'll, I'll, I'll say something, and, and the Holy Spirit will just whisper, really? Is that, is that what the Bible says? No. <laughs> and, and he'll give me these gentle teaching moments. Now, this was in a society where children were not listened to, right? They were kind of tossed aside. I think in some areas we've gone too far the other way where now children rule the roost. Uh, if you don't believe that, go teach preschool. And the child, though, becomes a model for the disciples to understand and to emulate. The child in this context symbolizes humility and dependence and the willingness to be the least. It's a call to the disciples to abandon worldly notions of power and prestige and to adopt a posture of humility and service. And this is central to the Christian faith, emphasizing that true greatness is found not in social status. True greatness is not found in power. It's not found in wealth. It's not found in fame or popularity. True greatness in God's kingdom is found in humility and service and love for others, especially the least among us. And Jesus, through this simple yet profound act, redefines greatness. He redefines it as being like innocence. He redefines it as being like vulnerability and openness and childlike faith, inviting his followers then and now to embrace these qualities in their journey of faith and service. You've heard me use this phrase many times, but kingdom economics just work differently. Right? If you want to be greatest, be the least. If you want to be like the master, be the servant of all. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other. And a host of others. And then in verse 48, Jesus tells us what true greatness really is. 
Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. This is a very powerful and countercultural message about greatness and service in the kingdom of God. So we're going to break this statement down. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. That's the first thing Jesus said. So Jesus first identifies with the child, suggesting that how we treat the least, the most vulnerable, the most dependent in our society is indicative of how one treats Jesus himself. It emphasizes the intrinsic value and dignity of every individual, regardless of their social status or their perceived worthiness. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 25, verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. James gets into this when he talks about showing favoritism. He says, when you're in church, and you got to keep in mind in James' day, the context of that time, it was probably a house church. They probably didn't have comfy chairs and, and noisy furnaces and all of that. But it would have been a house church. And people would have been sitting in a living room that probably didn't have ample seating for the number of people gathering to be part of that service. And James says, when you're having this service and you have a rich man come in dressed in fine apparel, and at the same time, he walks in with a poor man, and you take the rich man and you set him in a special place, you give him the nicest recliner in the house, right, the one that doesn't squeak in the and the foot thing still kicks out? What's that called? Foot thing. No, anyways, we're going with foot thing. Right? And he's going to have the nicest TV tray to have dinner on. Right? And this is his spot. And if the poor man, you walk in at the same time, you throw him on the floor over by the wall somewhere just to get him out of the way. James says, don't do that. Why would you do The rich man oppresses you, most likely, and, and, and the poor man, why, why would you treat him that way just because he's poor? I, really, it's the reason I don't have anything to do with the money at the church. I don't know what any of you give. I don't want to know. And it's not because I think I would treat somebody who gave more better than I would treat somebody who didn't. But I'm a human being, and I don't want to be tempted by that. I, I don't want to deal with anything like that. And I've been in churches uh, where we had large homeless populations around us, and we would have homeless people show up. And they didn't smell good. And they weren't dressed nice. And we shook their hand. And we welcomed them. And learned, tried to learn their name or ask them if we could do something for them. That's what we did. Because we didn't care. Because God doesn't care. He doesn't care what you look like. He doesn't care what you smell like, right? He doesn't care how much money you have. 
He wants your heart. And that's how we should then look at the world around us. We shouldn't look at people with this, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little off to, yeah, I never do that. Um, little rabbit trail. But we, we don't look at people based on any other defining factor. When we were at the Wellness Fest, and this is not meant to be a brag, I really hope it doesn't come across this way, but when we were at the Wellness Festival, I met, uh, uh, when I didn't meet a young lady, I saw a young lady who works in an office, and I'm not going to say it because I don't want anyone to do it. Anyways, I'd met her before um, in this office, she's uh, like a receptionist, and I'd met her before, and and she was there, and you know, and I waved, and I said hello, and I, I was like, oh, I, I didn't know you were a student. She's like, oh, I'm not a student. I'm here with her. I'm like, oh, you know each other? Yeah, we're dating. Mm, okay. And this little thing in the back of me was like, it just, you know, it hits. Not, not because I was, oh, you're going to hell, and now I'm going to tell you why. Um, but it, when you're not expecting it, right? It just, it just comes, kind of comes out of the blue. And I was like, well, I'm. I'm just so glad you stopped by. That was about all, all I could get out. I didn't want to get myself in trouble. You know, but if they showed up to church, I would welcome them. I don't have to affirm their lifestyle to love them. Right? That, that, that's not what it's about. But I think one of the problems that we find, and, and you, can, you can find it anywhere, right? It, it doesn't even have to be uh, um, you, you know, the, the LGBT and everything else that comes after it issue, right? We can, we can do it with politics. We can do it with sports teams. We used to live in Oklahoma, and oh my gosh, I, I don't want to be mean. Anybody here from Oklahoma originally? All right, good. Because people in Oklahoma are nuts. I say that with all the love in my heart. Because you either root for... OU, the Sooners, or OSU, the Cowboys, and I met people in church, people who said they were believers, who would refuse to speak to somebody who rooted for the other team. And, I, and I, I talked to that person. I said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Oh, well, what do you mean? You know, they were, I said, I don't care. It's college football. Nobody cares. What, what are the chances, like 0.03% that one of those people is going to go on into the NFL, and then the chances that they're going to be successful is even less. Most of those kids are going to go out into the, into the education or the job, not the education world, the job world, and they're going to have to make a living because football is not going to do it for them. We had the same issue at a school we taught at when athletics was put way above academics and they would bypass kids who were failing classes to let them play. Yeah, I know they're getting an F, but we really need them on Friday night. That's what they did. Where was I going? What? Favoritism. We're back. But we look at way too many people in the world as some sort of enemy. Right? We're followers of Christ. We are followers of our master, Jesus. He did not look 
at the world as being filled with people who he saw as his enemy. The only time we ever see him get angry was with the religious hypocrites. Read the Gospels. When else did he get angry? He rebuked, he corrected, but there's only one time he flipped over tables and hit people. That would be my definition of anger. And that was with the religious hypocrites. Everybody else he loved. And when a woman caught in adultery came to him, he didn't toss her aside and say, oh, you committed adultery. I don't want anything to do with you. You're certainly not going to heaven. No. Go and sin no more. Or the parent, who we looked at this last week, who brought his son demon-possessed. He didn't look at him and go, wow, you must be an awful parent. How else would your son end up like this? And how do we turn that around in our society? Well, why, you sent your kids to a public school? You must be an awful parent. Shouldn't you be homeschooling? Or then you get the other side. You homeschool your kids? You must be an awful parent. Shouldn't you send them to school? Right? You let your kids watch Lord of the Rings? Yes, I did. I made them read it first. It's kind of a good parent. But we look at way too many people as the enemy. You're going to vote, you're going to vote for that guy? And I don't care which guy it is, but you're going to vote for that guy? Well, she's clearly, you're a moron. And it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you're on, that's what everybody's saying about the other side of the aisle, isn't it? Even if it's true, that's not the point. The point is, we have to stop seeing each other as enemies. We have to stop seeing other people and judging them by some very specific characteristic. Jesus said, I say to you, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. How we treat others is how we treat Jesus himself. Let's put that in our context. Do you think when we stand before him, he's going to look at us and say, you know what, when you met that homosexual couple, you, you didn't stand up and condemn them to hell. What's wrong with you? That's what you should have done. Do you think that's what he would have done? He would have told them the truth. I have no doubt about that. But he would have done so in love. Do you think when we get there, he's really going to be worried about who we voted for? I don't think that's his issue. What he's going to want to know is how did we treat the people who voted differently than we do? That's what he's getting at. That's what he's teaching us. And keep in mind, it's just as hard for me to listen to it as it is for me to say. Because I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that's what I always do. It's not. But it's what we're called to. And so when we welcome the least, we welcome him. Then he says, whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. So by saying this, he's telling us that when we welcome him, it's equivalent to welcoming God the Father. And here Jesus asserts his divine authority and unity with the Father. 
And it underscores the principle that acts of service and love are not just horizontal towards our fellow humans, but they have a vertical dimension as well. Like I just said, as we treat other people, that is a reflection of our relationship with God. And the last thing he says, he who is least among you, he is the greatest. And so Jesus flips the world's understanding of greatness on its head. In God's kingdom, as I mentioned a little earlier, greatness is not measured the same way. It's not measured by what we have or how popular we are. It's a radically different perspective. And it has a lot more to do with our humility, our service, and how we embrace those who are marginalized and overlooked than it does with whether or not our name is in lights or our bank account is impressive. This teaching challenges us to examine our attitudes towards others and invites us to embody a kingdom oriented approach to life. In Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, Jesus gives the same teaching in a slightly different context. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And anyways, that, that phrase, lord it over, means that they act like you just better do what I say. It's my way or the highway. This is my authority. You're going to shut up and do what you're told. It doesn't work well to tell somebody to shut up and do what they're told. But he says, it won't be this way among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So for the last few weeks, I've been putting our application at the end, and I named it a little differently today, Intentional Implementation. Do with that what you will. Um, the passage, though, presents a critical moment of teaching from Jesus to his disciples, which is us. And we need to look at how it applies to our lives today. So first, we're going to talk about humility in leadership. And the fact of the matter is that true greatness in the kingdom of God is not about power. It's about humility and service. And follow, as followers of Christ, we are called to lead by serving others, putting their needs, the needs of others before our own, and adopting a posture of humility. We read in Philippians 2, 3 through 5, that we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility we should count others more significant than ourselves. Each of us, right, we're commanded, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he's not saying that, you know, if you're hungry, don't eat. It's okay to look out for your own interests when it's necessary, but we're to look out for the needs of others, for the least of these. And I think the moment a lot of us hear leadership, something clicks in our minds that maybe this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a pastor. Maybe that I'm saying to you, I am a pastor. Um, or I'm not going to be installed as an elder next week. Or 
you know what, I, I mean, I'm not the boss in my job, I'm low man on the totem pole. Or, you know, in, in my family, I'm not the patriarch or the matriarch or whatever, right? So this, doesn't, this doesn't include me. Anytime you interact with another human being, you have an opportunity to lead them. I just want you to consider that for a moment. Maybe you don't have a title or a position or fancy letters before or after your name. And I'm going to tell you something. Those fancy letters, they just really don't mean that much. People aren't all that impressed by them. But here's the thing. If you are in your family and you're interacting with somebody, you have an opportunity to lead them through humility and service closer to Christ. If you're in the community, you have an opportunity to lead somebody every time you interact. And, and I'm not saying every moment has to be some cataclysmic event where every person you meet, there's thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening, right? I'm not saying that that's what you have to do, but every time you interact, you have that opportunity to let the love of Christ shine through you and lead somebody closer to him every time. And then if you have a position of leadership, we're commanded then, well, don't be a jerk about it, but serve the people that you're meant to lead. That's what we're being told. Second, we need to welcome the vulnerable. And Jesus uses a child to present that to us. But in our context, in our world, this translates into actively caring for those who are overlooked or undervalued, like the poor, or the elderly, or immigrants, or the unborn, or others who are on the margins of our society. And, and I know, you guys know me. Theologically, I am as conservative as a person can get. When it comes to the authority, authenticity of the Word of God in our lives, there is nothing higher. I will never look at a sin and say it's not a sin. I will never look at something going on in our culture and pretend it's okay because it's popular. We are always going to come back to the word of God. Always. But I'm going to suggest to you that some of the issues in our society that we are facing, some of the things that are the hot button issues, some of the things that people don't want to talk about or the church doesn't want to deal with, or the world blames the church for being bigoted about, or the church blames the world and says they're all going to hell over, some of those issues would not be the issues they are if the church would just love those people, whoever they might be. It doesn't mean we have to agree with their lifestyle. It doesn't mean we have to affirm their choices. But did Jesus tell us to love the people we agree with? Did Jesus tell us to love the people who look like us, sound like us, smell like us, or play pickleball better than we do? Actually, he did. You're supposed to love your enemies, but that's, that's another issue. Did Jesus tell us to only love the people who vote like we do? No. What did he say? This is my commandment. Love one another. Didn't say... Only love those who are living a perfect, sinless life. Because if that was the case, we'd all be in trouble. His command was to love. Now, true love, if you truly love somebody, you're not going to let them 
continue on a path that is destructive to them. That's the reality of it. And so if you love somebody, it's okay to share the truth with them in love. If you love somebody, it's okay to confront them over a sin in their life. But when we're talking about non-believers, what they need is Jesus. And so if you meet a non-believer looking at them and going, Oh, you're going to hell! How dare you sleep with that person or do that or do this or, or blah, 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 blah. How dare you do that? No, you know, it's nice to meet you. Can I share with you the love of the one who wants to save you from all that? That's what we're here for. That's why God put us here. Our treatment of these individuals reflects our relationship with Christ himself. Whoever welcomes this little child, whoever welcomes the vulnerable, whoever welcomes the overlooked, whoever welcomes the marginalized in my name welcomes me. I know this is not a popular sermon. Right? You, can, you can go to one of those other churches and they'll, they'll, they'll blow sunshine up your nose and send you away feeling great about your sin. I'm not going to do that. I love you too much. Not saying we have to affirm their sin. We don't. In fact, we're told not to do that. Go read Romans chapter one. We're not even we're not supposed to agree with it or pretend that we do. We are to love them. In Isaiah one, verses sixteen and seventeen, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Right? And I love that. Yes, we are called to a life of holiness. There's no doubt about that in Scripture. And as we are called to a life of holiness, then we, by his grace and strength, are to go out and care for those cannot care for themselves. James says something similar in verse 1, verse 27. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. It says the same thing, doesn't it? We are called to a life of holiness and we are called to a life of caring for the least. He redefined greatness. And so we have to redefine greatness. Right? We don't root it in success or, or the world's version of what that might be. Instead, we embrace and practice this kingdom-oriented perspective in our daily lives, seeking to serve rather than to be served. And Jesus is the greatest example of this in John chapter 13 when he washed the disciples' feet. And in verses 13 through 17 specifically of John chapter 13, he says, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So when we're done... I'm going to go sit back there. I'm going to take my shoes and socks off and let you practice what the word says. I am not going to do that to you. My children don't like me to take my socks off at home because I got ugly toenails. My, I freaked my wife out the other day, right, just staying on feet. So I have broken both of my big toes several times. 
As a result, I've had the toenails fall off both of my big toes several times. And one, along the way, and I won't show this to anybody, but along the way, my left foot, all my toes pretty much line up. But for some reason, there's a funky gap on my right foot between my big toes and the other toe, and then the right, the big toe, and that kind of has a weird angle to the right. I'm not going to make you wash my feet. I love you too much for that. And I have a little bit of a germ thing. I ain't going to physically touch your feet either. Uh-uh. So what does it mean? For Jesus, it was an example of being or taking that lowest place and doing something for somebody else that's sacrificial. Now, of course, he gave us the greatest example of that in his death and resurrection, but he goes on. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We know these things. There is no person who's been sitting in church for any length of time or who's read through scripture or who's been a Christian for a while who has not heard this taught. That if you want to be the greatest, you got to be the least. If you want to be like the master, you have to serve. And Jesus said, it's awesome that you know it. Now go do it. This passage gives us the opportunity to reflect on our motives. Why do we do the things that we do? What was the disciples' argument? I want to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. He's going to pick me over you. I'm me, 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 me. And what does the Bible tell us? Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, we do things for other people, but that's not why we do things, right? If you do something and then you're upset because, well, you know what? I, I went over and I shoveled their driveway out and they didn't come out and bring me hot cocoa with marshmallows in it and tell me thank you and put a banner up with my name on it saying, my neighbor Jason shoveled my driveway. What an amazing human being he is. Or you just shoveled their driveway because it was the right thing to do, right? But there's people who get upset about that. You ever meet those people? Well, you know, I, I helped so-and-so out, and they didn't say thank you. Yeah, welcome to life. That's not why we do it. I do it to glorify him, knowing that he's going to give me my reward. And I'm just going to throw this out there. You guys could make me a banner. That'd be great. It's going to be nothing compared to what he's got planned. So save your money. Don't make me a banner. I don't need it. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The love of Christ controls us, or your, your translation may say, compels us or constrains us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who raised, or for him who was, for their sake, died and raised. Wow, I read that really badly. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. Here's the point. We don't live for ourselves. What is our motivation? His love came around for a circle completely by accident, at least from my perspective. Finally, Jesus calls us to 
to community and unity as followers of Christ. And I know this one's, this one's a little more of a stretch, pulling it out of the text. But instead of us competing for positions of honor or authority within the church, or within greater Christendom, we should support and uplift one another, recognizing that each person has value and a role to play in the body of Christ. It fosters a spirit of unity and mutual respect within the Christian community. Right? I'm going to put one small caveat. I'm going to preach a little bit more on this particular thing, and then we're going to close. Here's the one small caveat. There are churches, there are authors, there are people who are lying, unfortunately. They are preaching a false gospel. They are preaching um, lies about how you actually get saved. They're preaching lies about money or health, or they're preaching lies about end times even in scripture, right? Somebody comes to you and says, oh, you know, here's the thing. Jesus is coming back June 24th, 2024. And if you want to be ready, you better give me all your money. I'm thinking that person's lying. And if Jesus is coming back on June 24th, 2024, I want to spend my money. I don't want you to do it. No offense. Right? There's people out there like that. We don't have to uplift and support them. <laughs> right? There are authors that are saying things that are lies. There unfortunately are pastors in this town that are preaching false gospels. There are. It's unfortunate. Thankfully, they're few and far between. And there's a lot of people, and maybe they look differently, and maybe their music's differently, and maybe they have hardwood pews instead of soft, cushy chairs. Or, or maybe, maybe their pastor wears a suit and tie and has nice, combed, neat hair and, you know, isn't me. Um, and maybe... <laughs> Maybe it's something else, but who knows? And that's okay. If your church sings hymns and your pastor wears a robe, but you love the Lord Jesus and you're faithful to the word of God, we're on the same team. And if your worship set has much more rock and roll than ours does, rock and roll, man, I'm getting old, um, has much more rock and roll, that rock music that kids listen to, or, or maybe, and I promise you I will never do this, maybe your pastor gets up, on Sunday morning and wraps the sermon to you. If I ever do that, don't even fire me. Just shoot me. Just, just put me out of my misery. Something is broken in my brain. I'm not coming back. Right? But maybe, and you know what? But if you go to that church and your pastor wraps you the sermon and you hear the gospel and you hear the truth of the word of God and you grow in your faith from that, then awesome. It's not going to happen here, but Awesome. Right? I'm not going to look at them and say, well, they're not Christians because they don't do it the way we do it. Or that, that, that pastor's not right because he looks differently than me. I've had that said about me. I always think it's funny. Um, right? I, I, it's not it. I don't care what your music is. I don't care what your church looks like. I don't care what you look like. I don't care what the color of your skin is. I don't care what your music sounds like. I don't care if you preach from the NIV or the old King James or the new King James or the ESV or the NLT. <gasps> Or maybe even the message, but probably not. I will make fun of you. But here's the point. That's not what matters. We are the body of Christ. And whether we're talking about here in Gunnison or in Colorado or the United States or Canada or, or Paris or 
Africa or China where they're meeting underground or why doesn't matter. We are all in this together. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 through 26, God has put the body together such that the extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for one another. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It doesn't matter. I don't look at a church across town and think, oh, we're in competition for them. I need more people in my seats than they have in their seats so we can win. You want to know what? If somebody gets saved, we all win. If somebody comes to our church and gets saved and starts going to that church and they get baptized and then they go to a third church because they find a place to serve there, praise God. I don't care. Don't get me wrong. I, I would love for more people to be in our seats, but that's not the point. It's not the point. And if I have the opportunity to support them, I will. And I hope if they have the opportunity to support us, they will. Because it's not a competition. And within the church, it's not a competition. Right? We're not having Clayton become an elder because he's better than the rest of you. You want to know one of the biggest reasons why we did it? He's taller than me. Really, do you want to know? Because when I asked him, he told me no. He said, I don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't know that I'm ready. I've been a pastor for 19 years. If I ever figure out that I'm ready, we're all in trouble. But that's why. Because if I'd gone to him and I'd asked him, he said, yeah, it's about time you recognize my skills, son. Very, well, first off, we'd have to figure out why he started talking that way. And second off, it would have been a very different conversation. It's fun being in a small church. Everybody turn around and look at Clayton real quick. It's right there. Right? Because it's, it's not about that. It's not about that. So we're not competing in here. When you have a victory in your life because of Christ, I want to rejoice with you. When you're struggling, it will cause me to struggle. And vice versa. That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. That's what it means to be a family. Let's close. By applying these principles from Luke 9, 46 through 48, we can grow in our own discipleship and reflect the values of God's kingdom in our lives. It's a transformative process that not only changes us, but also impacts the world around us drawing others to the light and love of Christ. Jesus' teaching invites those who follow him to adopt a posture of servant leadership where power is used not for personal elevation, but for lifting others up, particularly those who are overlooked and undervalued in our society. This passage challenges us to reflect on our own perspectives and behaviors concerning leadership and service. It calls us to examine how we can embody the humility and selflessness that Jesus demonstrated throughout his ministry, ultimately serving others, not to receive praise or recognition, but out of love and obedience to God the Father. The greatest demonstration, uh, as we get into our two little questions at the end, 
The greatest demonstration of Jesus' servant leadership will always be his death and resurrection on the cross. In order to offer us the free gift of salvation by faith through grace, and I have to ask every week, have you received it? And maybe you're sitting here, maybe you're listening online, or maybe you catch this recording at some other time, and if you have never received the free gift of God's grace, salvation through his death and resurrection, you got to. You got to. There is no other way. I wish there was. No, I don't. That's a stupid thing to say. I don't wish there was another way. I wish people didn't believe there was another way. But Jesus is the way. My question then for all the rest of us, is there an area in our church or in our community where we can provide support and welcoming to someone who needs it? Right? This doesn't have to be in the church. It could be a neighbor. It could be a friend. It could be somebody you meet at Walmart. Right? Maybe it's someone in our church family who needs support and encouragement. Maybe it's someone in our greater community who is vulnerable or has been rejected by others. Where can we show the love of Christ to others in this way? And that is a very, very broad question. Because when we ask, where can we show the love of Christ to those who need it in our community? The answers are endless. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have shown us your love. You've shown us your love in Christ Jesus, our Savior. That you've given us the opportunity to know and follow you. And that you call us, Lord, then to share that love with others. Please reveal those opportunities to us. Please give us the grace to see the needs around us. And Lord, I know we can't, each of us, help everyone. But everyone here can help someone. Everyone here can love someone in Jesus' name. Or support someone, or encourage someone, or pray for someone, or share the gospel with someone. We can all do that. Just pray we would see those opportunities, that we would listen to the prompting of your spirit, and that we would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.